Wow, wow. At the UN General Assembly, President Trump had this to say about the Iran nuclear deal. The Iran deal was one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the United States has ever entered into. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States, and I don't think you've heard the last of it, believe me. Trita Parsi, author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy, begs to differ. Learn about the deal, who actually negotiated it, and what it would mean if Trump got his way and pulled the United States out of the deal right now. Trita Parsi, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So President Trump goes to the UN General Assembly, gives his first major address, and among the many things that he said, uh, and I'm not talking about Rocket Man, I'm talking about what he had to say about the Iran nuclear deal. And he said, quote, and we cannot abide by an agreement if it provides cover for the eventual construction of a nuclear program. The Iran deal was one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the United States has ever entered into. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States. What's your reaction to that? Well, there's many things I would say potentially could be an embarrassment to the United States. The Iran deal is not one of them. Now, of course, my colors are clear on this issue. My book is called The Triumph of Diplomacy, so it's clear where I'm coming from. But if we just take a step back and try to see what did this achieve that was so unusual, forget about the details on the nuclear front, but rather we had an international conflict. This was not just the U.S. and Iran. This was the entire world involved in it. The Israelis were about to go and start a war. It was resolved peacefully through diplomacy without a single shot being fired or without a single angry 4 a.m. tweet being fired off. Usually, we see diplomacy coming in after there's been a military confrontation to kind of clean it up and to be able to establish a new balance. Now we had diplomacy preventing a major war. That, without a doubt, I think is an amazing achievement. Now, when you take a look at the details of it, it's even better. Talk, because, talk about those details. Yeah. So, on a high-level front, you know, simple terms, this took two very bad scenarios off the table. The scenario of the Iranians being able to have a pathway to a bomb and the scenario of the United States and Iran going to war with each other. On the nuclear front... The Iranians had 22,000 centrifuges by the time the United States and Iran got back to the table and reached an interim deal in 2013, November. As a result of the deal, they shut down two-thirds of those, and more than two-thirds. They have now 5,000 centrifuges operating. Iranians are only allowed to have 400 kilos maximum. That's not enough for a bomb. That's one-third of what you need to build a bomb. So under no point in time, as long as this deal is kept and not killed, the Iranians simply don't have the material to be able to build a bomb. They had a plutonium reactor, which was very dangerous as it provided them with a plutonium path to a bomb. Concrete was poured into the very center of that reactor. It's destroyed. It can never be used for this again. Moreover, inspections, which is the most important thing, high-tech inspections, Every phase of the Iranian program right now is being inspected live. 
by either individuals or high-tech instruments that have been put into the program. There's essentially nothing the Iranians can do to cheat without the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, finding out very, very quickly because of these instruments, monitoring, uh, measuring radiation in the air and other things. This is quite amazing. We've actually never seen that type of an agreement in which things are pulled back as much. Certainly not without actually a war taking place first. In return, the Iranians got a couple of things that was very valuable to them. They got acceptance that they will have enrichment on their soul. This was an absolute red line for them. Moreover, they got sanctions relief, which was important, mindful of the way that the sanctions had hurt their economy. And it also offered them a path out of the type of isolation, self-inflicted isolation that they had caused to themselves by pursuing such radical policies. They were seen by many countries as a rogue nation, and this gave them a path to be able to come out of that. You mentioned the IAEA. Is that the main organization that guarantees or tries to guarantee and, or confirm that Iran is keeping its end of the bargain as a part of this deal? It is the ultimate body that assesses that because they're the ones who have the instruments. They're the ones who looks and views everything that is happening on the ground. They're the ones who have the technical expertise. And they have now issued eight reports that has stated very clearly that the Iranians are not violating the deal. Contrary to what a lot of skeptics said in Washington, D.C., the Iranians so far have been true to their word. You said eight reports. Are these mandated by the agreement? These are mandated by the agreement. This is constantly being monitored. The U.S. intelligence agency have reached the same conclusion, uh, that there are no violations. And as we saw this week, as a result of the first ministerial meeting at the P5 plus one level, in which both the Iranian foreign minister and Secretary of State Tillerson, Rex Tillerson, was there, he came out afterwards and contrary to the Trump administration's message, he said the Iranians are technically in compliance with this deal. Just one more thing on the on the eight reports. How often are they mandated to, to be released? I believe they're roughly every three or so months. Every three or so months. And you mentioned something, P5 plus one, that uh, maybe some listeners know what that is. But that's very important. What is P5 plus one? P5 is a reference to the permanent five members of the UN Security Council. Those are the great powers. The plus one is not Iran. The plus one is Germany. And then you have the P5 plus one negotiations with Iran. So those are the United States, obviously, Russia, China, France, and the UK. The reason why there was a plus one is because it actually was the Europeans that started this process during the Bush years. They were terrified that George Bush would start a war with Iran as he had done with Iraq, and they wanted to make sure that they resolved this before they went to war. The Europeans, because they took the initiative, don't call it the P5 plus one. They call it the EU3 plus three. They put the EU at the center, and then there's three additional countries. The US and pretty much everyone else has been referring to it as a P5 plus one because it's at the end of the day centered on the UN Security Council. And this is important, P5 plus one or EU3 plus three, the key thing in here is that this is not a United States deal. Contrary to what the president said at the UN, saying that this is the worst deal that the United States has ever negotiated, no. This is a multinational deal that has seven stakeholders involved here. And the idea that the United States could just pull out of this, one, technically speaking, 
Can the United States withdraw from this deal? The United States can by essentially violating the deal. So, for instance, what the Trump administration is looking at right now is to decertify Iran to Congress. You have the IEA reporting mechanism. Then you have a reporting mechanism that Congress enforced on President Obama, which is, okay, IEA does its reports, but you have to do a report to us as well every three months, every 90 days. And there, it's not just as to whether Iran is living up to the deal. It's also if you think that the deal continues to make sense for the U.S.'s national security and whether the continuation of the lifting or waiving of sanctions makes sense. The Trump administration has realized that there's a loophole for them there. They can't claim that Iran is violating the deal. They say it, but they cannot really make the case because they have nothing to go on. But they can go to Congress and say, but we will not certify Iran here because we don't believe that it's in the U.S.'s national interest, not because of the deal, but because of Iran's other activities in the region. The ball then is thrown to Congress. And then this Republican-led Congress has 60 days to decide what to do with that. 60 days to reimpose the sanctions that Trump then says is no longer in the U.S. interest to waive. If the U.S. then reimposes the sanctions, the U.S. is in clear violation of the deal. Will the deal be killed by that? That remains to be seen. But if the U.S. goes out and tries to implement those sanctions, start targeting French and German companies that are now doing legal trade with Iran, permissible trade, then you know it will be very difficult to see the Europeans. Will they stand firm? If they're not standing firm and they start walking out of the Iranian market, the deal will collapse. So it can survive a U.S. withdrawal, but it requires the Europeans to hang tough and say, we will, we will abide by the agreement exactly. that we are a party of, a party exactly. to, and that we help negotiate. And, and you're absolutely right. They could do that. I think they have signaled clearly that that's what they aim to do. But there's still some problems here. Because you see, when the U.S. imposes sanctions, it's not imposing sanctions on U.S. companies because there's hardly any U.S. companies doing trade with Iran. It would be on French, German, Russian, Chinese companies. And the sanction essentially would be that they would lose access to the American market if they're in the Iranian market. That's insane. That's insane. So essentially, even if the Europeans say, hey, we're going to stand firm, we're going to be abiding by the deal, European companies may say, oh, that's good for you. But I need to sell these tractors or whatever it is, and right. I'm not going to lose access to the American market. So I'm going to pull out of Iran. If you then de facto have a scenario in which the Iranians are not getting the benefit of being in compliance, they're not getting the economic benefit, then I'm very worried that the Iranians are going to start violating the deal because they're not getting the benefit of not violating the deal. And you start a very negative process in, in which eventually is a very high likelihood that the deal falls apart. A very negative process that in this modern age will spiral out of control, not over a series of months, but could be a matter of weeks or days. Yes. If people see that, um, and I said, you know, this is insane when you said, you know, U.S. sanctions against European companies um, doing business in Iran, I could just imagine, you know, listeners thinking, well, wait a minute, what does that mean for me as a business person, as a consumer, as an American? What's that going to do to our day to day? And it's just another point to show that even though the president zeroes in on this one deal, that there are a lot of things at stake. 
it's not just preventing Iran from getting a nuclear Absolutely. bomb. Absolutely. This is the part that I think has been the most problematic um, in the debate so far. And this is partly because Donald Trump is the president and he kind of sets the agenda and he has the first shot at framing the issue. And the frame that he has used is that this is a bad deal. This is an unfair deal. So the frame is, do you want to have a bad and unfair deal or do you not want to have a bad and unfair deal? It's not about, okay, here's another much better deal. Let's go for that, right? Because he doesn't have a better deal. He's just making the choice between an unfair deal or no deal. Well, if there is no deal, then you're going to have those two scenarios that I mentioned earlier on, those bad scenarios. They're going to come back onto the table. The risk of the U.S. going to war with Iran and the risk of the Iranians restarting their program without the restrictions, without the limitations, without the inspections that this deal imposed on them. And at that point, once the Iranians are once again inching closer towards having a nuclear weapons option, rest assured, those very voices in this town that have been attacking the deal are going to start saying, hey, we got to take the military action seriously now. That option is very, very important because what else can we do? Iran is inching closer to a deal. Well, if they are, it's because you helped destroy the deal. Inching closer to, to uh, a bomb. Nuclear bomb, yeah. So, so you said earlier that they poured concrete into one of the plants. Into the core of the plutonium uh, Right, core reactor. of the plutonium reactor. If, let's say, the deal is scuttled, would the Iranians have to build a whole new plutonium reactor in order to start gin up their process? And if that's the case, how much time does that add to whatever timetable we're looking at for them to actually get a nuclear weapon? The plutonium path is probably going to be very difficult for them to be able to restart quickly. The uranium path is a different story because they do have the centrifuges. Um, they can start rebuilding the cascades that have been deactivated, and they can also then start amassing low and rich uranium. Just to give you an example how the time, um, the evolution of this issue, and, and, and the very missed opportunities that we've had precisely because we've been chasing an unrealistic, unachievable fantasy outcome. 2003, the Iranians had roughly 150 centrifuges. They had no stockpile of low and rich uranium. They send a proposal to the Bush administration to open up negotiations and open up the nuclear program for full transparency as well as collaboration against al-Qaeda and other issues. The Bush administration doesn't even respond. In fact, the, the proposal was handed over to the U.S. government by the Swiss ambassador in Tehran, who's been tasked to be the point of communication between the U.S. and Iran since they didn't have any diplomatic relations. The U.S. chose to reprimand the Swiss ambassador for having done this. Time goes on. Without negotiations, the Iranians continue their program. By 2005, they have quite a few centrifuges, and they send another proposal to the U.S., or they send it to the Europeans, offering to cap their program at 3,000 centrifuges, because that's what they had at the time. Uh, the Europeans don't even send it to the U.S. side, because they know very well that Bush would not have accepted anything that was above zero centrifuges. By the time George Bush leaves office, Iran has 8,000 centrifuges. It has 1,500 kilos of LEU. The Obama administration first tried diplomacy in 2009. It was a well-intended effort. It wasn't particularly persistent, and as a result, it fell apart, mainly because of problems on the Iranian side, though. 
And then within a year, Obama was still left with the same tools that George Bush had, sanctions, cyber warfare, sabotage. And ultimately, that didn't work particularly well because by the time they met at the negotiating table in November 2013, Iran had 22,000 centrifuges, 10,000 kilos of LEU. That's the cost of not pursuing diplomacy. That's the cost of pursuing fantasy deals that are completely unachievable. If we had a more realistic approach earlier on, we could have actually prevented this program at a much, much, or frozen it at a much earlier stage. If we now restart it, by walking out of the deal, by violating the deal. First of all, they'll restart, they'll recuperate, they'll do it pretty fast, and then we will probably have a terribly difficult time getting back to the table because we were the ones who reneged on our word. And that would just give them more time to build it even further, and that's very dangerous. 2013, was that the year that President Obama and President Rouhani met at the United Nations. They didn't meet. They, that's right. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't meet, but they had a tweet and a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the turning point moment, was it not? The turning point moment actually come a little bit earlier because the U.S., thanks to the Omanis, had managed to start a secret negotiation with the Iranians that started in July 2012. That first meeting was a disaster. But by March 2013, there was a much better meeting in which there was a major breakthrough. And the breakthrough essentially was that the U.S. for the first time signaled to the Iranians that there is a particular path that the U- Iran could pursue in which the U.S. would envision accepting enrichment on Iranian soil, meaning no longer having that zero enrichment objective, which had been a major obstacle towards getting any movement. That was a major breakthrough. Then we got lucky because Rouhani got elected, and he was much more open to diplomacy, much more efficient at doing so. In the fall or late summer, August and September, were intense negotiations in secret by the U.S. and Iran. And then in September, they were meeting each other. Uh, uh, They were both in New York. Rouhani had just gotten elected. Obama really wanted to see if they could have a handshake, a moment, whether there were cameras there or not, just to build that confidence and trust to take this negotiation over to the goal line. Last minute, the Iranians chickened out. Having a photo op with the American president was too politically risky. And the U.S. side thought, well, this opportunity is now lost. But as Rouhani is on his way to the airport to go back to Iran, one of his aides called Jake Sullivan, who was in the U.S. government, and said there could be a phone call. And they quickly hustled and they managed to make that happen. And on his road, I think thankfully to New York traffic. <laughs> there was enough time, and they had a 15-minute chat, uh, which is very important because it meant that both presidents really put their signature on this process, really put their name on it. So now they had more of a stake for it to succeed and more of a cost for them if it failed. Talk about why Rouhani having a photo op with the American president would be a problem for him back home. Uh, if I remember correctly, in in Iran, there's like a, a dual political power system. You have Rouhani, who, who is elected, but then you have the clerics. And help me if my, if my terminology well, is wrong. Rouhani is a cleric as well. But, yeah. but you have the, the ayatollahs, the religious yeah, leaders have, who also hold exactly. enormous sway. Yeah, uh, more sway than Rouhani does, at least when it comes to the supreme leader, of course. Let me perhaps explain it like this. Prior to this, 
this breakthrough, there was significant effort on the U.S. side to make sure that when President Obama was at the U.N., usually in September every year for the opening of the General Assembly, we would make sure that there was no moment in which President Ahmadinejad and Obama would run into each other, chat with each other, be in the same picture, and, and God forbid if Ahmadinejad had extended his hand and President Obama would have had to shake it because of political sensitivities on this side. I mean, of course, Ahmadinejad was quite different from Rouhani. Here's a man who was questioning the Holocaust, having the most venomous rhetoric against Israel. Not particularly good for Obama to be in a picture with him. On the Iranian side, it's similar. Now, of course, Obama is no George Bush, but there was still that sensitivity. And much of that sensitivity comes down to this issue. Hardliners in Iran know they are in a minority. And they also know that their control over the country is very much um, based on their control of militias and, and paramilitary groups, uh, the IRGC, as well as their control of the economy. If there is a warm-up in U.S.-Iran relations through a nuclear deal, for instance, it could lead to a scenario in which the U.S. would once again be able to enter the Iranian market. If, for instance, U.S. sanctions had been lifted, primary sanctions, U.S. businesses would come in. Iranians would love to buy American goods. In fact, they still buy a tremendous amount of goods that they're being shipped in from Dubai and other places. Eventually, the domestic political balance in Iran would start to shift if the United States had a presence in Iran. And that they see as an existential threat to their own power. So in order to avoid anything even close to that, they're putting the, the line in the sand much further away. No talks with the U.S., no pictures with the U.S. Uh, and the only time this really fundamentally changed was over the nuclear issue in which a consensus was brought in the Iranian power elite that at a minimum there need to be a nuclear deal with the United States and the P5 plus one in order for that issue to be resolved. But the hardliners were very nervous that that would be a stepping stone towards a broader rapprochement, as were the Israelis and Saudis and others who also didn't want to see the United States and Iran lose each other as enemies. You open your book um, with uh, a description of a confrontation between a U.S. naval vessel and Iranian forces just before President Obama stated the Union Address in 2016, his last one as president. What happened there, and why is that such that particular moment such a big deal in U.S.-Iranian relations? It was a huge deal for many different reasons. This is about four or five days before the nuclear deal is officially going to be implemented. The Iranians had done their initial part. They had closed down those uh, the reactor, the plutonium reactor. They had shut down a lot of their centrifuges. Once all of that was done and it was certified by the IEA, it was the U.S.'s turn to now lift sanctions. Just a couple of days before. And at the same time, what no one knew at the time, including myself and others who were quite closely following this, was that there were also been secret negotiations in order to get several Americans out of Iranian jails, including Washington Post's own Jason Rezaian. Then something happens that was not planned, it was a complete accident, had not been foreseen, and that is that on a regular mission between, I believe it was Kuwait and Bahrain, uh, 10 American sailors commit a series of mistakes. They have their uh, navigation instruments 
shut down, and they eventually realized that they're lost, but they had no idea where they were until a couple of Iranian IRGC Navy ships show up with guns drawn. And that's when they realize, oh, shoot, we're in Iranian waters. They decided to not confront, realizing that the instructions or the unwritten rule was do not shoot first. Uh, because, as one of them said, I was not going to start a war over navigation mistake. They're taken by the Iranian Navy. Uh, a couple of hours later, the Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif and John Kerry were scheduled to talk because of the implementation of the nuclear deal just a couple of days later. They're informed about the situation, and instead of talking about the implementation, they had to deal with this issue. Of course, from the U.S. side, they wanted to get the American sailors out, and they didn't want to have a confrontation or a crisis. And very quickly, they made clear, our understanding was that this was a mistake. They had a navigation issue. The Iranians had actually, by that time, made the same conclusion, that this was a mistake. This was not a hostile effort by the United States. So the conversation very quickly becomes a constructive one. How do we resolve this as quickly as possible? And precisely because John Kerry and Zarif had spent a year and a half, two years negotiating, spent a lot of time with each other, there was a modicum of trust and confidence between them. They spoke to each other five times that night. By the second conversation, they already had a deal. The rest of it was implementing the deal and making sure that logistics works. Within 16 hours, these 10 American sailors were released, and they came back home. We have had other experiences in the past when there was no communication, when there was no confidence and trust. 10 or so British sailors got into a similar situation 10 years earlier. They were kept for 10 days. We, of course, had a case in which uh, American diplomats were held 444 days. It was a tremendous fear that this could lead to something really disastrous. It would jeopardize the release of Jason and many others. It would jeopardize the nuclear deal. But precisely because they had a diplomatic channel, within 16 hours, this was resolved. And none of the tweets that were sent out by then-President-elect Trump had any impact on the negotiations between the United States and Iran to get those 10 sailors released? There were people, uh, I don't remember exactly what Trump tweeted, but there were a lot of Republicans that said this is a hostage situation. Obama kept a cool head, didn't listen to them, and instead worked to make sure that they got out. And we have no example of a situation like this in which the Americans are getting out safe and sound within 10 days, uh, within 16 16 hours. hours. Of course, at the same time, there were things that the Iranian IRGC did that was really, really horrible and humiliating. They filmed them. They filmed them when they were having their hands up, etc. These are actually violations of certain codes that exist. But it's also interesting in the sense that in other circumstances, even a non-crisis, hardliners in Iran could turn into a crisis. Now they had a crisis and they couldn't capitalize on it precisely because diplomacy was there. What I'm worried about is that it took nine months for Tillerson and Zarif to talk to each other. The conversation they had this past week was a conversation that was in a multilateral setting. Nothing had been done to just reconnect these two foreign ministers and make sure that they talk like civilized people do and resolve problems. One of the things that the French President uh, Emmanuel Macron said 
um, in a conversation with journalists during the, the UN General Assembly, he talked about adding, quote, two to three other pillars to the current deal, the current nuclear deal, as a way of keeping the United States within the, within the framework. What are those other pillars, and is that even possible, do you think? I think it is possible, but I think some people here have spun it the wrong way. What Macron said and what Macron meant is not renegotiate the existing deal. That's not what he said. What he said is consistent with what others have said. If we can have additional negotiations on top of the nuclear deal in which we address the many, many, many other concerns that exist between the West and Iran and between the United States and Iran, why not? Let's do it. Those other concerns being... Everything from their missile program to their support for Hezbollah to their role in Syria and Iraq and Yemen. And that's the Western concern. There's a Mm -hmm. whole list of Iranian concerns that they would also like to put on the agenda, obviously. But the issue is it's not about renegotiating the existing deal. This would be an additional negotiation. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, it does not jeopardize the existing deal because the existing deal is safe and sound because it's working. That was very clear from what the Europeans said this week. But in order to get to that point in which we can say, let's have another negotiation, well, you first have to commit yourself and live up to your um, obligations under the existing deal. And that's not what Donald Trump is doing right now. He's undermining the deal. There are good arguments to say that he's actually violating the deal right now. How, how so? Because Article 29 in the deal says that once these sanctions have been lifted and as long as Iran is living up to its end of the bargain, you cannot stand in the way of what is now permissible trade. Donald Trump has gone and personally and actively at the G20 meeting pressured other countries not to trade with Iran. That trade is now permissible as a result of the nuclear deal. That's like the Iranians going back and building more centrifuges that they're not allowed to do. So that's actually not a violation of the spirit of the deal, and no one knows what the spirit is. This is actually a violation of the letter of the deal. So the U.S. doesn't come with credibility to be able to say, let's have another negotiation. I wish it did, because I think this is exactly what is needed. We now have a very good example in which a major problem between the West and Iran was resolved peacefully. Why not use that to resolve the other problems? Because those are real problems. There's really Iranian concerns and there's really Western and American concerns. Why not resolve those through the same means, diplomatically, in a civilized way, peacefully? Let's do it. But that means you have to know how diplomacy works. That means that you have to build the credibility to be able to be an efficient negotiator. And it means you have to create an atmosphere that is conducive to negotiation. If I were to guess... The way Donald Trump is doing it is the way that a real estate developer in Manhattan behaves. You scare the daylights out of your competitors. You scare the daylights out of your subcontractors and you twist their arms until they lower their prices. Other countries, France, Iran, Russia, are not subcontractors to the United States. The Iranian president has said in response to President Trump's speech, no one would trust America again, and there is no higher price to pay than this. Which country would be willing to sit across the table from the United States of America and talk about international issues? Doesn't the Iranian president have a point? He certainly does, and that's part of what's so different these days. When we took a look at Trump's speech and Rouhani's speech, I mean, Trump was all about America first, uh, naked nationalism. 
And then, of course, making that very, very, I would say, unprecedented threat or warning from the podium at the GA, at the General Assembly, in which he said that he would completely destroy North Korea. I think a lot of people in the world, including very, very close allies of the United States, were shaking their heads when Trump was saying this. Then Rouhani, not, in agree- not in agreement. Shaking their heads in, in violent disagreement, I would say. <laughs> and then when Rouhani came and talked about the need for multilateralism, for the need to making sure that we build on these agreements, etc., cetera, uh, even though Iran doesn't necessarily have the best of track record, a lot of countries were nodding their heads in agreement. Just five years ago, it was exactly the opposite. The Iranians were coming there with the most radical, reprehensive message at the UN. And the United States was the moderate, reasonable party. It, it's just astonishing that it has, you know, it's changed 180 degrees. Can the United States survive um, this administration's total turning American foreign policy on its head? Can it survive the impression it is leaving with its allies that the United States might not be the indispensable nation anymore? Can we survive that? I think let's talk about a um, post-Trump era. Let's say that we go back to what has been normalcy for the last couple of decades. Or as Senator McCain would call it, regular order. (laughs) Regular order. I think there would be plenty of American allies and even non-allies that would be quite eager to see the United States play a more responsible traditional role and as a result would be willing to give the United States the benefit of the doubt because it would yearn to, to have that. There would be plenty of countries as well that would see this as an opportunity to move towards a more multilater- multipolar global order And there would be plenty of American allies who, despite how much they would like the U.S. to play that leadership role, would still not be able to get over the fact that what they would see as a major betrayal and always be a little bit more extra careful, realizing perhaps or concluding rightly or wrongly that Trump is not some sort of a foreign plant. He didn't come from Mars. He came out of the United States as well. And there are plenty of people in this country that seem to have liked what he said at the UN and realize that that is going to be a major challenge for the United States to play that leadership role uh, in a way that really instills confidence amongst other countries. Trita Parsi, president of the National Iranian American Council and author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hi there. My name is Alyssa Rosenberg, and I write a column about culture and politics for the opinion section of The Washington Post. I'm also the host of a new podcast miniseries called The American War. It's a guide to Ken Burns' new documentary, The Vietnam War, but it's also a deep dive on the biggest issues from that conflict that linger with us 50 years later. 
We'll discuss each episode as it airs with Ken, his co-director Lynn Novick, and many of the other voices featured in the film. Join me for this conversation on how America lost its way in Vietnam and how Ken and Lynn are trying to help us find our way back. You can find The American War wherever you listen to podcasts and online at washingtonpost.com slash The American War. Thanks for listening. The Washington 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 Post. Post.